Chapter 11 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton. Chapter 11. Of the woman whom chance and her own helplessness had thrown upon his hands, he knew, in those first months, curiously little. She remained to him what she had been from the moment she clutched at his arm and fled with him, an encumbrance for which he was responsible, and as the numbness passed from his brain and he began once more to live mentally, she entered less and less into his thoughts. She was Ada Cartwright. As pronounced by its owner, he took the name at first for Ida, ex-factory hand and dweller in the northeast of London, once vulgarly harmless in the company of like-minded gigglers, now stupefied by months of fear and hunger, bewildered and incapable in a life uncivilized that demanded of all things resource. As she ate more plentifully and lost her starved hollows, she was not without comeliness of the vacant, bouncing type, a comeliness hidden from Theodore by her tousled hair, her tattered garments, and the heavy wretchedness that sulked in her eyes and turned down the corners of her mouth. She was helpless in her new surroundings, with the dazed helplessness of those who have never lived alone or bereft of the minor appliances of civilization. To Theodore, at times, she seemed half-witted, and he treated her perforce as a backward child, to be supervised constantly, lest it fail in the simplest of tasks." It was his well-meant efforts to renew her scanty and disreputable wardrobe that first revealed to him something of the mind that worked behind her outward sullen apathy. In the beginning of disaster, clothing had been less of a difficulty than the other necessities of life. Long after food was a treasure beyond price, it could often be had for the taking, and when other means of obtaining it failed, those who needed a garment would strip it from the dead who had no more need of it. In their hidden solitude, it was another matter, and they were soon hard put to it to replace the rags that hung about them. Thus, Theodore accounted himself greatly fortunate when, ransacking the rooms of an empty cottage, he came on a cupboard with three or four blankets, which he proceeded to convert into clothing by the simple process of cutting a hole in the middle. He returned to the camp elated by his acquisition, but when he presented Ada with her improvised cloak, the girl astonished him by turning her head and bursting into noisy tears. "'What's the matter?' he asked her, bewildered. "'Don't you like it?' She made no answer but noisier tears, and when he insisted that it would keep her nice and warm, her sobs rose to positive howls. He stared at her uncertainly as she sat and rocked, then knelt down beside her and began to pat and soothe as he might have tried to soothe a child. In the end... The howls diminished in volume, and he obtained an explanation of the outburst, an explanation given jerkily, through sniffs and accompanied by much rubbing of eyes. No, it wasn't that she didn't want it. She did want it, but it reminded her it was so hard never to have anything nice to wear. Wasn't she ever going to have anything nice to wear again, not ever, as long as she lived? She supposed she'd always got to be like this. No hairpins and straw tied round her feet instead of shoes made you look as if you'd got feet like elephants, and she'd always been reckoned to have a small foot, made you wish you was dead and buried. 
He tried two differing lines of consolation, neither particularly successful, suggesting, in the first place, that there was no one but himself to see what she looked like, and in the second, that a blanket could be made quite becoming as a garment. That's a lie, Ada told him sulkily. You know it ain't becoming. How could it be? A blanket with a hole for the head? Might just as well have no figure. Might just as well be a sack of potatoes. I wonder what anyone would have said at home if I told him I should ever be dressed in a blanket with a hole for the head. And I always had taste in my clothes. Everyone said I had taste. And, stirred to the soul by the memory of departed chiffon, by the hideous contrast between present squalor and former Sunday best, her howls once more increased in volume, and she blubbered with her head on her knee. Theodore gave up the attempt at consolation as useless, leaving her to weep herself out over vanished finery while he busied himself with the cooking of their evening meal. And in due time, she came to the end of her stock of emotion, ceased to snuffle, ate her supper, and took possession of the blanket with the hole for the head, which she wore without further complaint. The incident was over and closed, but it was not without its significance in their common life. To Theodore, the tragicomic outburst was a reminder that his dependent, for all her childish helplessness, was a woman, not only a creature to be fed. While the stirring of Ada's personal vanity were a sign and token that she also was emerging from the cowed stupor of body and mind produced by long terror and starvation, that her thoughts, like her companions, were turning again to the human surroundings they had fled from. Man had ceased to be only an enemy, and the first sheer relief at security attained was mingling in both of them with the desire to know what had come to a world that still gave no sign of its existence. Order, the beginnings of a social system, so Theodore insisted to himself, must by now have risen from the dust. But meanwhile, because order restored gave no sign and the memory of humanity debased was still vivid, he showed himself with caution against the skyline and went stealthily when he broke new ground. There were days when he lay on a hilltop and scanned the clear horizon for an hour at a time in the hope that a man would come in sight, just as there were nights, many, when he lived his past agonies over again and started from his sleep alert and trembling lest the footstep he had dreamed might be real. Meanwhile, he made no move towards the world he had fled from, waiting till it gave him a sign. If he had been alone in his wilderness, unburdened by the responsibility of Ada and her livelihood, it is probable that, before the days shortened, he would have embarked upon a journey of cautious exploration. But there was hazard in taking her, hazard in leaving her, and their safety was still too new and precious to be lightly risked for the sake of a curious adventure, which might lead, with ill luck, to discovery of their secret place and the enforced sharing of their hidden treasure of food. Further, as summer drew on towards autumn, though his haunting fear of mankind grew less, his work in his own small corner of the earth was incessant, and in preparation for the coming of winter, he put thought of distant expedition behind him, and busied himself in making their huts more weatherproof as well as roomier, in the storing of firewood under shelter from the damp, and in the gathering together of a stock of food that would not rot. He made frequent journeys, sometimes alone, sometimes with Ada trudging behind him, to a derelict orchard in the lower valley, which supplied them plentifully with apples. 
He had provided himself with a wet weather occupation in the twisting of osiers into clumsy baskets, which were filled in the orchard and carried to their camping place, where they spread out the apples on dried moss. With summer and autumn, they fared well enough on the harvest of other man's planting, and if Theodore's crude and ignorant experiments in the storage of fruit and vegetables were failures more often than not, there remained sufficient of the bounty of harvest to help them through the scarcity of winter. It was with the breaking of the next spring that there came a change into the life that he lived with Ada. They had dragged through the winter in a squalid hardship that, but for the memory of a hardship more dreadful, would have seemed at times beyond bearing, often short of food, with no means of light but their fire, with damp and snow dripping through their ill-built shelters, where they learned, like animals, to sleep through the long, dark hours. Through all the winter months, their solitude was still unbroken, and if any marauders prowled in the neighborhood, they passed without knowledge of the hidden camp in the hills. It was, so far as he could guess, on one of the first sunny days of March that Theodore, the spring lust of movement stirring in his blood, went further from the camp than he had as yet explored, following the stream down its valley into the wide belt of burned land now rank with coarse grass and yellow dandelions. For an hour or so, there was nothing save coarse grass, yellow dandelion, and gaunt dead trees. Then a bend of the stream showed him roofs, a cluster of them, and instinctively he halted and crouched behind a tree before making his stealthy approach. His stealth and precaution were needless. The village from a distance might have passed for uninjured. The flames that had blackened its fields had swept by it, and the houses, for the most part, stood whole. But there was no living man in the long, straggling street, no movement save of birds and the pattering little scuffle of rats. The indifferent life of beast and bird had taken possession of the dwellings, of those who were once tyrannized over them, and not only of their dwellings, but their bodies. At the entrance of the village, half a dozen skeletons lay sprawled on the grass-grown road, and a robin sang jauntily from his perch on the breastbone of a man. From one end of the street to the other, the bones of men lay scattered in the road, in gardens, on the thresholds of houses, some with tattered rags still fluttering to the wind, some bare bones only, whence the flesh had festered and been gnawed. By a cottage doorstep lay two skeletons touching each other, whereof one was the framework of a child, the little bones that had once been arms, reached out to the death's head that once had borne the likeness of a woman. There was a time when Theodore would have turned from the sight and fled hastily. Even now, familiar though he was with the ugliness of death, his flesh stirred and crept in the presence of the grotesque litter of bones. These people had died suddenly, in strange, contorted attitudes, here crouching, there outstretched with clawing fingers. Gas, he supposed, a cloud of gas rolling down the street before the wind, and perhaps not a soul left alive. From an upper window hung a long, fleshless arm. Someone had thrust up the casement for air and fallen half across the sill. It was the indifferent, busy chirping of the nesting birds that helped him to the courage to explore the silent street to its end. It wound through the village and out of it, to a bridge across a river into which flowed the smaller stream he had followed since he left his refuge in the hills. 
From the bridge, the road turned with the river and ran down the valley in a south to southeasterly direction, a road grass-grown and empty and bearing no recent trace of the life of man, nothing more recent than the remains of a cart, blackened wood and rusted metal, with the bones of a horse between its shafts. Below the dead village, the valley opened out, the hills receded and were lower, but between them, so far as his eye could discern, the trees were still blackened and lifeless. Down either side the stream, the fire blast had swept without mercy, and from the completeness with which the country had been seared, Theodore judged that it had been largely cornland, waving with ripe stalks at the moment of disaster and fired after days of dry weather. All life, save the life of man, teemed in the hot March sun, the herbage thrust bravely to obliterate his handiwork, larks shrilled invisibly, and lithe dark fish were darting through the arches of the bridge. He went only a yard or two beyond the end of the bridge, having, as the sun warned him, reached the limit of distance he could well accomplish if he was to return to the camp by nightfall. On his way back through the village, he fought with his repugnance to the grinning company of the dead and turned into one of the silent houses that stood open for any man to enter. Though the dead still dwelt there, stricken down on the day of disaster, before they could reach the open air, there were the usual abundant traces that living man had been there before him. The door had been forced and rooms littered and fouled in the frequent search for clothing and food. All the same, in the hugger-mugger on a kitchen floor, he found treasure of string and stuffed the blanket bag slung over his back with odds and ends of rusting hardware, finally mounting to the floor above the kitchen where, at the head of the staircase, an open door faced him, and beyond it, a chest of drawers. The drawers had been pulled out and emptied on the floor. What remained of their contents was a dirty litter, sodden by rain when it drove through the window, and browned with the dust of many months, and it was not until Theodore had picked up a handful of the litter that he saw it was composed of women's trifles of underwear. What he held was a flimsy bodice made of soiled and faded lawn with a narrow little edging of lace. He dropped it, only to pick it up again, remembering suddenly the blanket episode and Ada's lamentable howls for the garments a wilderness denied her. Perhaps an assortment of dingy finery would do something to allay her craving, and, amused at the thought, he went down on a knee and proceeded to collect an armful. Appropriately, the shifting of a heap of yellowed rags revealed a broken hand glass lying face downwards on the floor. As he raised it, wondering what Ada would say to a mirror as a gift, its cracked surface showed him a bedstead behind him, not empty. What was left of the owner of the scraps of lawn and lace was reflected from the oval of the glass. He snatched up his bag and clattered down the stairs into the open. End of chapter 11. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci.